Well, good morning, everyone. Let's go ahead and start our sermon with a word of prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, thank you again for this beautiful day, for your new mercies this morning. How great is your faithfulness. How holy you are and how holy is your word. As we come to your word now, we ask that you will give us trembling hearts uh, as we come to uh, look at your wonderful truths. We ask that you convict us. For those of us who need conviction, uh, give comfort to those who need comfort this time. We pray all these things for your glory and for our greatest good. Amen. Amen. Many of you know that I work at a hospice agency full-time as a chaplain. It's been nearly two years now. Time flies. And recently, I had a patient who was admitted into our hospice agency. Uh, she was diagnosed of having lung cancer, and the doctor stated that she has less than six months to live. But when she was younger, she got involved with the wrong sorts of crowds. She got into drugs and alcohol, and as a result, she became homeless. And she lived uh, as a homeless person in San Jose for the past 20 years. And recently, I met this young lady. She's actually younger than me, uh, a little bit younger than me. She, she's really bitter. Uh, she doesn't want to have anything to do with God. She actually doesn't even want to talk to me. She's hung up the phone on me, so I can't impose or force anything upon her. So I called her sister. Her sister's completely different. She wants to talk to me. In fact, she can really talk, and she's a Christian. Um, my patient, uh, she's completely anti-God, anti-Bible, and everything. But her sister is, is a professing Christian. She's a prayer warrior, and she loves to talk. You think I like to talk? <laughs> Well, put her on the phone with me, both of us who love to talk. You got a one-hour phone call easily. But this lady can talk. She really loves to talk, and she loves to pray. Well, she's had these ongoing issues with her back for the past few years now. Um, she's also had a rough life. She's recovered from alcoholism, and she's uh, had two husbands that passed away uh, tragically, and uh, she has a broken household. She's been raised up in a broken household, but she has this back uh, that just her L5, if you guys know anything about the vertebrae, the L5 is a lower part of the back. It's been bothering her. She's been praying. She's a prayer warrior in her church. She prays for everyone in her church, and many of her prayers get answered for these people, except for her own prayer, for her own requests, for her lower back. It's been aching. You know, she, she tells me uh, that she can't brush her hair without pain. She can't go to bed or sleep without pain. She can't walk without pain. She, everything hurts, uh, this pain. She's had multiple surgeries on her back. And she says, why, Lord? How long must I go through this pain on my back? Why won't you heal me? You know, she was crying on the phone when she was telling me this. She's like, Pastor Stephen, what do I, what's going on? Why is God delaying? What do I make of this? What can I learn from this delay? God is healing everyone in my church. But me, he's not nothing. It's been over two years. And she's weeping. Why does God delay with my prayer requests? What would you say to that lady, that dear poor lady? What would you tell her, my friends? I mean, all of us have delays in life, especially since the COVID-19 has manifested itself across our globe, changed everything, the way we live. It has delayed many things, if not everything. And so delays, we have delays. And delays are forms of trials. And trials are from God. And these trials, beloved, they can, they can turn us into better people or they can turn us into bitter people. What delays have you been experiencing in your life currently? What prayers have you been sending up to God over and over every day on a daily basis for a long time and you're waiting for him to answer these prayers. You're waiting for clarity. You're waiting for an answer, something. Well, if you've been a Christian for a long time, I'm certain that you have experienced God's delays. And this morning, we're gonna talk about delays in life. <clears throat> in fact, delays in life are advanced lessons on faith. David, King David in the Bible, he experienced them. If you remember in the book of Psalms, uh, he says, I'm weary with crying. My throat is parched. My eyes fail while I wait for my God. And then Psalm 13, he says, he wrote again, how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? 
wow, there's a word for a person who's experiencing a serious delay. Have you, have you ever felt like David in these Psalms, beloved? Waiting and waiting. It is especially difficult in light of the shortness of life when you're in a lot of pain. The older you get, the quicker life seems to fly by. Amen, older folks? <laughs> well, let's turn to, together to Mark chapter 5, if you haven't already. Turn with me in your Bibles. Mark chapter 5, we'll, we're looking at verses 21 to 43. I read the entire passage last week, and this week I won't do that, but we're just going to go through it. Uh, this is a fascinating passage, so just follow along with me in your Bibles. And this, basically, this passage, beloved, Mark chapter 5, verse 21 to 43, I noted that there's two miracles taking place, two events, two people in dire need taking place at the same time, and they both are in great need of Jesus immediately. And here Jesus is teaching lessons on faith to his disciples. Last week, we saw basic lessons on faith in the first miracle when he healed the bleeding woman. Today, we will look at advanced lessons on faith about the second miracle when he brings back to life the little girl, Jairus' uh, little daughter. So the basic lessons we saw last week essentially taught us how a person finds faith and connects with Jesus. If you remember, the person needs to have a desperation for Jesus. Secondly, the person needs to have information about Jesus. How can they believe if they do not hear, right? Thirdly, the person needs to have a direction towards Jesus. And fourthly, the person needs to, to look at the substitution of Jesus. These are four elements, four crucial elements about finding and having faith in Jesus. So these are the basic elements of faith we looked at last week. Now, this morning, we're looking at lessons I'd like to call advanced lessons on faith. So for you older Christians, you already know what this is all about. This is going to be a nice primer, a, 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 a reminder on lessons of faith. But why do we need lessons on faith? Why does Jesus keep giving lessons on faith? If you read through the, the, through the Gospel of Mark or Matthew, Luke, John, any of them, you'll notice that Jesus is continually giving lessons on faith over and over through his miracles and his teachings. When he's talking to people individually or in crowds, he's giving lessons and lessons on faith from, from the moment he begins his ministry to the point where he dies. You would think people would have learned already what faith is and how to obtain it what true faith looks like. Why is this so important? Well, the answers may be obvious. There are two possible answers. One, to reveal whether, you are, whether or not you have faith. <laughs> Secondly, to reveal if you are growing in your faith. Now, here's the interesting part, the interesting thing about our story. This woman with a blood problem, the blood disease, you know, she's bleeding for 12 consecutive years nonstop. She comes up and touches Jesus on the fringe of his cloak. Everybody's crowding around Jesus. And we're told twice in our passage that they're, they're thronging him. They're really close. They're pressed up on him. They're crowding around him. You see the word throng. It says in verse uh, 24, and a great crowd followed Jesus and thronged about him. That word throng it basically means that it means to press something all around, press something on all of its sides. And Mark is, that's Mark's way of trying to say that they were up against Jesus. They're trying to hug him, kiss him. They were grabbing him. They were, everyone's trying to touch Jesus, hoping that a miracle would happen to them, hoping that they would experience some kind of blessing. You see, Jesus was being thronged and followed by this massive crowd. And Jesus turns around at one point and with all his disciples around him and his disciples are like his bodyguards and they're, they're watching over him and they, these crowds are pushing against him. And Jesus turns around at one point and says, somebody touched me. Who touched me? And Mark records the, the, the disciples response. Listen to the response. He, they say, Jesus, you, it's filled with rudeness, filled with uh, disdain and confusion. They say, you see the crowd pressing in on you, Jesus, and you say, who touched me? It's like they're saying, duh, everyone's touched you. How could you ask such a silly question? 
They're all thronging you. They're pressed up against you. They're throwing themselves at your feet, Jesus. Somebody touched you. Yes, of course. Crowds of people have touched you. That's the attitude of the disciples. In fact, that's usually the attitude of the disciples before Jesus gives them a lesson on faith. Well, here we have another lesson of faith coming up for this attitude that these disciples have. Now, here's the scary thing, beloved. All these people were around him. They were thronging him, pressed up against Jesus. And there was only one person in that massive crowd who actually connected with him in faith, in true faith. It was the bleeding woman. You see, you can be around Jesus all your life. You can be crowding him. You can be coming to church. You can be talking about him. You can be admiring him. You can be singing songs and praises about him. You can go to Bible studies in small groups and large groups studying about him. It's the same thing. It is very much possible to be that around Jesus Christ that much, but never really connect with him. Just like these crowds, it's possible you can be around Jesus all the time, every day of the week with the church and never connect with him. And what was, the, what was the primary difference between these crowds and this bleeding woman? It's faith. He says the difference between the woman and the rest of the crowd was her faith. When she, when she comes out, Jesus says to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. That's pretty frightening, actually. There are an awful lot of people today who are professing to be Christians. They have crowded themselves around Jesus for such a very long time, and yet they've never really connected with Jesus. Have you not seen this? This is in the parable of the four soils again. A lot of people, they become inspired when they're part of a little church where they grew up. They hear the sermons. They're inspired by the sermons. But when they leave the church, when they, they move away, God was never real in their life. Or they're inspired and helped by the, the, the practices and the, and the help and the deeds of the church that the church did to their family. But when the person moved away from that church, again, Jesus was never real anymore in their life than it was when he was with, with the church. What, is that, what does this all mean? It means that the person has experienced the same experience as these crowds, who are around Jesus. They never truly experienced Jesus. They never came to know him. This person never touched him. You can crowd yourself around Jesus. You can go to church. You can read, go to groups, hang out with Christians, be helped by Christians, help other Christians. But you need faith if you're going to have any connection with and relationship with Jesus at all. That's the need for the lessons on faith. That's why Jesus keeps giving lessons and lessons and lessons. It was the very first lesson of all the parables that we talked about. We spent two weeks on that. So right away, in verse 22, we meet Jairus. Jairus, what a good name. The ruler of a synagogue. Mark 5, verse 22 says this. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name. And seeing him, that's Jesus, Jairus fell at his feet. Now the ruler of the synagogue, man, what a title that is. It means... He was a lay president at a synagogue. The ruler of the synagogue had charge over all the elders of the synagogue. He was usually a man of great reputation, great responsibility, even great wealth. And therefore, he would have been a man of great devotion to God. Very religious man, very lots of morals. He's very highly respected in his community. Very prominent, great reputation. However, this one here, we see, is desperate because his little girl is as good as dead. Now, it took a great deal of humility and courage for Jairus to go to Jesus in this way, in this manner, because he, he fell down at the feet of Jesus, and the Jewish leaders were already plotting to kill him. They were so jealous. Uh, Jesus is getting all the attention from all the people. They're following him, not only him, but his teachings. And you see the language that is used by Jairus here. What does he say in verse 23? He says, he doesn't say, he says, my little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. He doesn't say, my little daughter might die. My little daughter is about to die. 
he says. And what does Jesus say? Basically, he says, yes. And you can imagine the excitement of Jairus when Jesus gives the posture and the invitation that he accepts the invitation to come. Now, you can imagine what's going on in Jairus' mind. On one hand, you know, he realizes there's hope for a sick daughter who's just in the distance off, who can be saved from dying from this wonderful prophet, this man who claims to be the Messiah. But on the other hand, imagine, he's like, wow, but this hasn't happened yet. He's still got to go there. You know, she can still die. You know, the crowds are around him. Like, I don't know how this is going to work. There's too many people. Are we going to make it? And in verse 30, this is amazing. If you, as you move on through this passage, verse 30, it says, at once Jesus realized that power had gone out from him. So they were going on their way to Jairus' house. And you remember, Jairus met Jesus first. And then Jesus runs into another person, the bleeding woman who needs help. And she is basically the main delay for Jairus. Right? Jesus stops and talks to this. And look at this verse. Jesus realized that power had gone out from him. And that word power, Jesus experiences weakness in his body. He knows he's, there's been healing. He looks around. He stops everything. The crowds rushing with him. His disciples rushing with him. Rushing with him. He stops everyone. If it were today, he would have stopped the paramedic truck. The sirens that were blaring, that would have turned off. He says, who touched me? You know, he stops everything. He says, I need to find out who got this healing for me. He stops and he finds her. And he brings her out from the crowd. And he has this good, long discussion with this bleeding woman. This is not some casual, oh, well, see you later, you know, kind of conversation. It's, it's a lengthy discussion. Uh, we know this. You look at the way he talks to her. Imagine the, imagine what's going on in Jairus's mind right now. Imagine his stomach must be churning and turning. He's probably getting sick to his stomach and saying, Jesus, Lord, we got to go. My daughter is at the point of death. Please imagine the confusion of the disciples. You know, the confusion of the disciples. What is this? What is our Lord doing? Anybody who knows, anybody who sees this woman with a chronic problem, she's telling Jesus that she's had a problem for 12 years. It's an ongoing chronic problem. Now, we know the difference between her problem and Jairus' daughter's problem. Her problem is chronic. It's continuous. It's been going on a long time. And the young girl's problem is an, an acute problem. Let's put the words up there so you can see what I'm talking about. The bleeding woman has a chronic illness Jairus' daughter has an acute illness. Chronic means it's been going on for a long time. It's a tragic, sad thing, right? For many years. But that problem could have waited at least another two or three hours if it's been going on for 12 years. Though the little girl has an acute illness, she can die any moment. But you see, Jesus chooses to stop and delay and to talk to this poor woman. This makes no sense to all of the disciples and to Jairus. This is absolutely irrational, you would say. Listen, if any doctors today in an emergency room were to receive two people in there, one woman coming in with a chronic problem with a migraine or something like that, that could wait a couple hours, right? And at the same time, a little girl comes in and she has a terrible wound, a stab wound. She's about to die. She was stabbed. If they decide to treat the woman with the migraine first and let that little girl with the stab wound just wait there, you know what happens, right? <laughs> well, this is what Jesus is doing. Jairus and the disciples are saying to Jesus, what on earth are you doing, master? What are you doing? Don't you understand the situation? Hurry up or it's going to be too late. I need help from you now, Jesus. I don't need help from you later. I need help from you now or from now. But Jesus, he still talks to this lady, and Jesus will not be hurried. So it appears that Jesus is lollygagging, right? He's just talking, talking to this woman. And the thing that Jairus, Jairus was absolutely afraid of, it happens. 
it happens. Verse 35 tells us, what does it tell us? While Jesus was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? Under that statement is a tone of no hope, zero. A loss of hope, despair, despondency. Why bother Jesus any further, they say. You can imagine just how Jairus felt when he heard that terrible news, how he felt toward Jesus that moment, maybe extremely disappointed, maybe some resentment there. But it's interesting, Jesus looks up at him, probably smiles even a little bit and says, do not fear, only believe. Wow, that is Jesus' response to these circumstances. Jesus basically says, I will not be hurried. It doesn't matter what the circumstances look like. Do not fear, only believe. So what do these delays in our lives teach us? Our passage shows us that delays in life teach us at least three invaluable lessons about God. Three invaluable lessons from God. Now, these three sermon points, again, I, I've adapted from uh, sermons from John MacArthur and Tim Keller. These three points here, these three invaluable lessons or principles we see in our scripture. And these are wonderful truths about God, what we can learn from our delays. What is the first lesson, beloved? The first lesson we have here, delays teach us the wisdom of God. Now, I'm telling you this uh, for you older Christians. You're going to look at all these three lessons. I knew that, Pastor Stephen. These are great reminders, okay? Because uh, we always need reminders, don't we? The first lesson here, delays teach us the wisdom of God. We have this woman. She is chronically ill. She has a serious blood problem, a disease that's going on, living with it for 12 years. Here's a little girl. She's not chronically ill. She's acutely ill. Okay. She's on the verge of death. What are we going to do? What are you going to do, Jairus? There's not one emergency room doctor that will say, we have to take the woman first. Let the girl wait. That's absurd. No one would ever say that. However, essentially, in the wisdom of God, in the wisdom of Jesus, Jesus does that. He does that. That seems absurd. That seems absolutely nuts to us. But remember, Jairus and the disciples and everyone else in this story that we're reading, they cannot see things that we as readers can see. Did you get that? You look at the people in our text who are reading them, you would think, I would respond the same way as these disciples and Jairus. I'd be having a panic attack. But they do not have all the information that we readers have. We have things that we can see because we're reading the whole story. There are factors that are missing to them, but not to us. And what are these factors? What do we see, beloved? Well, the first thing we realize is that Jesus, we know this, Jesus Christ has no more trouble raising a dead person than healing a sick person. Amen? We know that. We know he raised himself from the dead. He's raised Lazarus from the dead and others, right? We know as readers, as Christians of the 20th century, reading the scriptures, that Jesus has no more trouble raising a dead person than healing a sick person. There's no difference at all. None. And we see in our story that both miracles happen by Jesus with a simple touch. Just a simple touch. And the woman was healed. Just a simple touch. And the young girl was raised back to life. It makes no difference at all for Jesus. Now, here's the second thing that we realize, that we know, that Jairus and the disciples didn't know. Jesus looks out in the crowd, and he realizes that there's a woman who had just been physically healed by touching the fringe of his cloak. No one knew this. Only Jesus did, and us, of course, the readers. And you see, this woman has been physically healed, but Jesus cares more about her soul than just her body. This is why he stops, beloved. Let me say that again. Why did Jesus make this absurd delay? Why did he put off going to the, the little girl? He stopped when this woman was healed because he cared about her soul more than her physical body. 
Now, remember, she demonstrated faith in Jesus Christ. It was a small, itty-bitty, misinformed, superstitious, weak, imperfect kind of faith, but it was still faith, according to Jesus. Remember, daughter, your faith has made you well. And the woman believes poorly, very superstitious. She thought, if I can just touch him, the cloak, I will be healed. But unlike others, she still had faith. It might have been faith like the size of a mustard seed, but it was still faith. It was just enough so that she can come to Jesus and be saved. That's the point. If you remember, Jesus said that he came to seek and to save that which is lost. She knows she has a physical need, but she doesn't know anything about her need for a relationship. And therefore, Jesus stopped and he talked to her continuously. It tells us, it tells us that in verse 35. He's talking to her. And if Jesus had not dealt with her at that very moment by talking to her, she would have never become an eternally transformed disciple of Jesus, whose entire life is completely turned around and will be turned around forever and ever and ever. You see, Jesus stopped there and talked to her, gave her the message of the gospel and redeemed her soul. That is necessary. That is why Jesus stopped. No one knew this, but Jesus, this is the priority of God, beloved. This is the wisdom of God. Whether the little girl lives or dies, that doesn't matter for Jesus, because we know that raising someone from the dead is not harder for Jesus than to heal someone from sickness, from a chronic disease. So in God's, in God's all infinite wisdom, this woman had to be dealt with immediately. Her soul had to be dealt with immediately. You and I see that in this text. Jesus saw that. No one else saw that because of these crucial missing factors not known by Jairus and the disciples. And so Jairus is filled with fear and anxiety, worry, debilitation, maybe even some resentment towards Jesus. How do we know this? Because Jesus tells him, stop being afraid. Jairus was, Jairus was being afraid of his circumstances. Who wouldn't be? Your daughter just died. What do you do? Now, let me ask you something, my friends. Right now, are you worried because of a delay in your life? Is there something on your mind right now? You're, not, you're having a hard time focusing on the sermon or worshiping today because there's something in your mind that you're worried about? Are you in anger about it, maybe? Maybe there's some resentment. Maybe you're feeling depressed, some despondency, feeling down about it. Have you been going through times in your life where you basically walked away from your devotions? You're not praying. You're not reading anymore. You're not talking to any other Christians as much. You've fallen from hope because you're, you're thinking there's absolutely no, no way that anything good can come out of this decision, out of this situation. None. That's what you're probably thinking. You're thinking, how can anything good come out of this situation? This is so inexcusable. This is so unreasonable. What are we being, what are we being told by God here? Well, let me tell you, there are some missing crucial factors in your delay that you are not aware of, that you just can't see. How could you see them? You and I are like Jairus and the disciples in the story. We don't have all the factors. Do you remember that verse in Isaiah? Isaiah chapter 55, let me put it up here on the screen for us. Verse 8 and 9, uh, the Lord says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the, high, as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. You know what this verse is talking about here, essentially? It's talking about the holiness of God. And God's holiness simply means that he is transcendent. He is far above everything. There's no one, there's nothing like him in any way. He's far greater than any other being because he's the creator and everything else was created. He's greater than all of us in everything. His ways are, and thoughts are far higher and holier than ours because he's far greater and holier than us. And not only that, his love is a holy love. It is a far greater love than we could ever love. 
God's justice is a holy justice. His standards of right and wrong are far greater than man's standards of justice and standards of right and wrong. God's wisdom is a holy wisdom. It is far greater than our wisdom. We sang about this just a few moments ago. Thank you, Tall Dan. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The angels sang it in Isaiah 6, and we sing it on Sundays. Do you really understand it? Do you believe these things, beloved? Do you believe that God's love is a holy love? Do you believe that his justice is a holy justice? Do you believe that his wisdom is a holy wisdom? If we believe these things, then why do we at times fear our circumstances more than we fear God? And when we do that, what is that called? It's called anxiety. It's called worry. Now, you remember just a few chapters back in the Gospel of Mark, if you read that, the disciples were on a, on a boat with Jesus in the Sea of Galilee. Remember that? And Jesus was fast asleep. He was down, sleeping on the stern of the boat, in the fishing boat. They were caught in the middle of a storm. And what happened? What does the text tell us? It says they feared the storm greatly, right? And they saw Jesus and they were panicking. They actually feared the power of the storm more than they feared the power of Jesus. They've already witnessed the power of Jesus casting out demons and doing miracles and all these things. They feared their circumstances more than they feared God. And what do they do? You panic, you worry, you run around like a headless chicken. You ever seen those? It's a mess. But Jesus, he corrected their faith. As soon as he woke up, he calmed the storm by what? By the power of his word. <laughs> All of a sudden, the disciples, they were no longer terrified of the, of the storm. They became terrified of Jesus. Why? Because they had a direct encounter of the holiness of God. Jesus' power is a holy power. There's no other power like it. It's far more powerful than the puny storm. He created that storm. And even more, it is more terrifying to have the holy God of the universe in the same boat with you than it is to be caught in a storm. They realize that. We all know this. Worrying, it never gets anything done. It's proven in all human history. Go ahead, Google every historical event where the leader of an army is worrying. It never gets anything done. So here's a, here's a principle, the first principle we can learn. When we worry, we are choosing to be mastered by our circumstances instead of being mastered by the word of God. When we worry, we're not thinking correctly, beloved. We're not remembering God's word. We're not remembering God's promises. We're not remembering for God who he is and his wisdom and his sovereignty. Analyze the logic of this little statement that Jesus makes. He says, do not be afraid, only believe. The next time you're tempted to worry, remember this verse, memorize it. It's a short verse. Do not be afraid, Stephen, only believe, Stephen. When you're tempted to worry, put your name in there. Make it personal. Both of these verbs in that, in that, in that verse in the Greek tense are active tense, meaning they're ongoing. So it can be translated as, it can be translated as this. Stop being afraid. Only keep believing. So when we keep being afraid, we become worried and we stop believing in Jesus, who is greater than our problems. We know this. Jesus is greater than our problems. Are you worried? Maybe you're depressed. You know, there was a magnet on my parents' refrigerator as growing up as a kid. I'll never forget it. It has three statements. And the magnet says this. I don't have a slide for you, but I'll read it to you. It says, worrying believes that God will get things wrong. Depression believes that God has gotten things wrong. But faith believes that God gets everything right. Amen? So true. I mean, there's so many Christian cliches out there, but this is one I'll never forget. Worrying believes that God will get all things wrong. Depression believes that God has gotten things wrong. And faith believes that God gets everything right. And the Greek word for anxiety is a very interesting word, beloved. It's an interesting word because it means basically to be shattered into a hundred pieces. And when it's used in passages uh, like in Philippians, when Paul says, do not be anxious for anything, 
in Philippians 4, basically it's talking about the mind. When, you, when you're anxious, your mind is shattered into hundreds of pieces. You ever had to have a, someone shatter one of your porcelain in your kitchen? Maybe if you have a tile floor, your porcelain dish or your vase, it just shatters in a hundred pieces. That's like your mind when you worry. Because when you worry, you think about this, you think about that. What if this happens? What if, what if that happened? What if this didn't happen? What if they didn't, if they didn't do this, we would never be here. It goes on and on and on. Constantly thinking about a hundred different things that could have possibly happened or should have not happened. And your mind is divided. It's all over the place. And when your mind is like that, there is no peace. There is no trusting in anyone, even in God. That's why worrying is not a small deal. Worrying is a big deal. It's a direct assault on the character of God. It's a direct assault on the sovereignty of God. When you worry, when you and I worry, beloved, we're saying, I knew better than you, God. God, you got things wrong. Things should happen this way, not that way. My goodness. We don't say those exact words, but when we worry, that's what we're saying. That's the attitude behind worry. Well, we don't know everything in our trials. We may never fully understand everything, but we do because we don't have the crucial facts like I talked about. But God has all the crucial facts, doesn't he? Amen. And he's all powerful. That's why we can fully trust him. We cannot fully understand the wisdom of God. Let me ask you something, my friends. If you were given the opportunity to be God, let me try to give this illustration without being, without being blasphemous. If you, could, if you were given the opportunity to be God for just one day, okay, that you could be omnipotent, all-powerful, right? That God will let you be the all-powerful one for just one day. What would you do? Think about that. What would you do? A lot of us would say, I'll get rid of the coronavirus. I would get rid of, I would change a lot of things, you know? I would change a lot of things in my life. I would remove this trial. I would remove that stressful thing. I would get rid of that person, maybe put them in France or something, get them away from us. You know, click, click, delete, deleted for those of you guys and in in ladies in the tech world. It's as easy as deleting junk mails, right? Click, click, deleted, drag, delete, junk box. Omnipotence, right? You can do whatever you want. But don't forget, omnipotence is only one aspect of being God. Don't forget that God is omniscient. Omniscient meaning he knows all things and he is infinitely wise. If you were omnipotent, if you were God for just one day, that means you would have to be omnipotent and omniscient. Well, guess what? If you were both omnipotent and omniscient, you would leave everything just the way it is. You would not change a single thing in this world or in the history of your, of your life. You will leave everything exactly the way it happened. Why? Because you would know all the crucial factors. You would know all the circumstances. You would say, why would I need to change anything? Everything is working together for good. Everything that's happening to me in this world is for my own good and for my own glory. That's if you're God. Why would you not want, why would you want something to happen for your own good and for your own glory? Because you're God. You wouldn't want to change anything, anything of that. You wouldn't want to have a lesser glory. I have a friend, Jedda and I have a friend who has four boys. Uh, three of them are severely autistic. And many of you who know our kids, we have two. Uh, the older one is, has been diagnosed as severe. But our friend, she has three boys that are severely autistic who make our oldest son, uh, they make his autism look tiny, if you will. God bless these three boys. They're very gentle, meek boys. They're about, they're in their twenties now. Uh, our friend has told us that, you know, it's been a long 20 years in her life. Now, if you don't know anything about autism uh, with, with kids that are severely autistic, okay, they need to be watched 24 hours they need to have an adult supervision around them 24 hours a day. You can't leave them alone. You see, you need someone to hold their hand, guide them, continually feed them, change them. If you aren't watching them for just a few minutes, they might do something that can really hurt themselves or even other people. Uh, you know, our son, we didn't watch him for a few minutes and he climbed the roof of the church. That's how detrimental it can be. You got to hold his hand. 
Eddie, you've watched our son before for a few hours. God bless you. If you aren't watching these kids, they can do anything. Our friend, she quit her 24 hour job, or sorry, her 24 seven job as a nurse. She had a wonderful, successful job as a, as a nurse. She quit it so she can watch her three sons full time. After raising her boys for 20 years, she told me and Jetta with a smile that she hasn't gotten much sleep the past 20 years. Because literally, you don't get much sleep with a child that's severely autistic because they don't sleep regularly like normal, like typical people sleep. If they wake up in the middle of the night, well, guess what? They're not going back to sleep. If they wake up at one or two and you're the parent, say goodbye to the rest of your night sleeping. You're up with them. You got to watch them because they can hurt themselves. You can try all you want to get them to put, asleep, put them to sleep. They might fall asleep, but they think it's time to start the day. And so she didn't get much sleep for 20 years. However, looking back, looking at hindsight, looking at the rearview mirror of God's providence, she told me that she can see the wisdom of God in all the circumstances of her life with the three precious boys, her three autistic boys. So many events would have never happened so many people that she met would have never met if her boys were typical boys. She's been praying for nearly two decades. Talk about delays. She's been praying for two decades nearly for God to show mercy on her boys that would completely remove the autism so they can live typical, healthy lives. She loves her boys so much. Who wouldn't want their children to live healthy and prosperous lives? At the same time, she says she would never change anything in the past about her boys and in her life, even if she could. Even to this day, her precious sons are still autistic. God bless them. My friend is, not, is choosing not to be angry or fearful of her circumstances, and therefore she doesn't worry. She is not being controlled by her circumstances, but rather she is being controlled by the promises of God, by the word of God. This is faith, beloved. This is faith in action. Faith, it is a conviction in God and in his promises. So abiding, and it's so abiding and it's so deep that it gives the believer everything and necessary to live a life of obedience and perseverance. That's what we talked about last week in Hebrews 11. It is conviction in God's promises that you have this radical obedience and perseverance. So back to our passage in, in the gospel of Mark. Okay, Jesus tells Jairus, do not be afraid. Keep believing. Jesus says to him, you got to keep believing. You have to trust in me, Jairus. I am the one who says, I am the divine son. I am the holy one of God. I am the Messiah. I am the savior. He's the creator of the universe. You know, of course, I'm going to see these things. You're not going to be able to see these things, Jairus. Jesus says, stop being afraid. Keep believing. Stop being afraid of your circumstances. Keep believing in me. That's what he's saying there. So Jesus' delay here shows the amazing wisdom of God. And it makes it easier for us to deal with them. We know that God has all the crucial factors. He's got everything under control. And we don't. That's what it means to be a child of God and to trust in him and his promises and to be his child. Second lesson, beloved. Delays teach us the grace of God. Let me give you the principle of this statement right here immediately. When I say delays teach us the grace of God, we must remember that God owes us nothing. Let's compare Jairus with this poor bleeding woman. In some ways, it might, it might, not, uh, might not strike you. Uh, in some ways, it may. But Jairus was a man and she was a woman. Not very striking. However, Jairus is a synagogue ruler. This lady was what? She was a cat, an outcast. She's destitute and poor. Jairus was a high prestigious, prominent synagogue ruler, most likely wealthy, well-respected, great reputation. This poor lady, low reputation, outcast. She's even banned from the synagogues from worship. She has no one, no one in her life. She's unclean. Anyone she touches gets to, and gets close to, they get unclean. 
complete opposite ends of the spectrum. She's even religiously destitute. Wow, this woman, she's even, she has this uh, social uh, destitution. All the men had status in that society. Women had no status. She was poor. She was chronically sick. Now, if you remember, that's just like uh, the, the poor man in John chapter nine, the man who was born blind. You know how people view this poor woman? They must have thought her as a cursed by God or that she did some kind of sin or maybe her parents sinned. That's why she's in that state. That's how they viewed suffering people like that. In John chapter nine, the blind man, they were questioning who sinned that this man was born blind. Was it the man's or the parents sin or his sin? They assumed he was guilty. They assumed that he had sinned. They assumed that there was a curse in the family. Here's a woman who's chronically ill. No one can get her better. No one can help her. She's at the opposite end of the spectrum as Jairus. Jairus being socially, economically, morally, religiously. Prominence. Jesus stops for her. Now, what is this telling us? Dick Lucas is a pastor and a theologian, great expositor of scripture in London, England. He wrote a commentary on the Gospel of Mark, and in his notes, he tersely puts it this way. He puts it very well. Let me read it to you. He says, Jesus Christ takes the time to comfort and teach an unclean woman with a chronic problem, causing the male church leader an urgent need to wait. You can just wait. Ouch. End quote. Ouch. What is this? What is Pastor Dick Lucas talking about? What is going on here? You know, this is something that the gospel says over and over and over again. This is over and over again in scripture that Jesus resists and reverses the world's standards of beauty and of power and of status, completely reverses it. What we're being told here is that Jesus Christ rejects the world's understanding of what is good and what is bad, what is right and what is wrong, who is in and who is out. Why does he do that? Because of the cross. What's the way of the cross, beloved? The cross means the way up is down. The way to get power is to serve. The only way to save your life is to lose it. The first shall be last. It means to get the righteousness of God is to admit that you have no righteousness of your own. The way of the cross is up, is down. And Jesus Christ is simply following this. He's following this in this delay. He's trying to show us what God's grace is really about. God's favor, his blessing is not based on your performance or your status. What does it mean? Here's what it means. This delay proves the grace of God. And I would like for you to consider this for just a few moments, beloved. Think about the delays in your own life. I submit to you that all the delays are from God and they are there to teach you about God's grace. Why? Here's why. Delays do and they ought to teach us sorrow, right? They do and they create sorrow. They teach us what sorrow is. Delays of justice, they do and they ought create anger. I want you to realize sorrow and anger are not only natural, but they are absolutely right. In some ways, they're even obligatory. If you have a heart, if you have a conscience, then delays in justice, delays in love can and will create sorrow and anger in your heart. However, when the soul becomes infected, when your soul becomes infected with the sorrow and anger, when it takes over you, because you can have a godly sorrow, you can have a righteous anger. In Ephesians, Paul says, be angry, but do not sin. In Corinthians, it tells us that we can have a godly sorrow. But when you have the sorrow and anger infected, when it takes over you, when the sorrow goes bad, when the anger goes bad, when it poisons you, it takes control, it pushes you down, it ruins your day, it ruins people around you. They don't want to be around you. 
Well, that's when it gets bad. It's destroying your life because of the delays. It's inside you. Do you know what this foreign objects that's causing your sorrow and your anger to turn bad and bitter? It's what all old Christian writers from centuries ago would always write about. They would call it this foreign object works righteousness or self-righteousness. It is a sense that says, God owes me. Jairus could have said that. He could have said, what have you done, Jesus, with this delay? Why did you delay? My daughter is now dead because you have delayed. After all that I have done for God, I have been such a faithful synagogue ruler. I have helped other faithful Jews worship God and please him. I have set a good example to the community in being a good Jew. I've used my wealth for his glory and for the good of the community. I've given so much tithing. I've given so much time for God. I've raised my family in the way of the Torah and the scriptures of God. And this is what I get? This is how you treat me? Jairus could have said all that, right? What is this attitude that Jairus could have had if he said all these words? What would be the attitude? That's the attitude, basically, God owes me. That's the same attitude the older brother has in the parable of the prodigal son. You remember that in Luke 15? The prodigal of the two sons? That is a self-righteous attitude. Remember the prodigal son gets the wasteful son. He's a spendthrift son. He goes to his dad, gets all the wealth, the money. I want my inheritance now. Boom, he gets it. Spends it all on prostitutes, partying, alcohol. I don't know if they have what kinds of drugs, but he spent it on illicit things. And he got, he broke, ended up in the pig pen. He came to his senses, came, came back to his father with a repentant heart, pleading to be, accepted as he is with a change of heart. The father forgave him, took him in. The older brother is watching. He got envious. He got angry at his dad. And he said, I, why are you doing this for my brother? He wasted all of the family goods and money. And you give him this pay in return for what he did. I've always been close to you. I've never left you. I have always served you. That's actually the main point. The older brother, the, the right self-righteous brother is the main message of that parable has nothing to do with money. It has something all to do with self-righteous, self-righteousness. God owes me. You owe me. That's the attitude here. Even if you have just one ounce of that little attitude, we must get rid of that attitude. I don't need to go to church next week. I, I've been serving at church for five months now in a row. I played so, I've done too much. I, I can skip church. You know, I don't have to worship. I don't have to pray today. God owes me a day off completely from worshiping. Even if you have a little ounce of that, get rid of it. If you get rid of all attitude like that, all your thoughts, get rid of it. You will bear, be able to bear better in your delays, beloved. Get rid of all self-righteousness. Get rid of everything where you think God owes you something. Then and only then you will be able to bear your delays. Then and only then will your delays make you a better person. It'll make you great. They'll make you clean. They'll make you stronger. They'll make you wiser. You'll become a better counselor. And by the way, did you know that people, the best counselors are those who suffered the most. People who suffer the most make great counselors. Of all human beings, Jesus Christ suffered the greatest. We know that. That's why the prophet Isaiah calls him wonderful counselor, prince of peace. Now, this foreign object of self-righteousness is still there in your heart where you're saying, God still owes me. That delay will make you bitter. The delay that you have in your life, it will infect you. It will overtake you. You will say to God, this should have never happened to me. I don't deserve this. Self-righteousness is such an incredible root. Do you know where all the worry comes from in our lives, beloved? Just about all of our worries. Where does it come from? It comes from our self-righteousness. Why do I say this? Because when we worry, we are saying we know exactly how our life should go. Life should go the way I planned it. And if it doesn't go, if it doesn't go the way I want it to go, then we worry. And when we worry, we are saying that God got it wrong. We get angry, we get disappointed. Beloved, this is self-righteousness. Do you know why the grudges, the anger, and the resentment we have in our lives towards certain people 
Why do you have resentment towards certain people in your life? And this, it's distorting your life. It's always because of self-righteousness. Self-righteousness destroys relationships. Have you, have you ever been mad at someone for a long time? Do you know why you stay mad at that person in your heart? Maybe you don't tell other one, you don't tell other people around you, but you're still angry at this person for years. Do you know why? It's because you are telling yourself in your heart, you're saying, I would never do that. The thing that that person did to me or to my family, I would never do such a thing. That's self-righteousness. But if you confess in your heart and you say, you know, I would have done something like that. In fact, I would have done something worse. You would have been already been able to forgive that person of what they've done to you and to your family. You would have forgotten. You would have forgiven. You would have no bitterness, no malice. You know, all of our relational, all of our relational problems, beloved, all of our emotional problems, our social problems, at the root of all these things is our self-righteousness. And therefore, God delays. One of the purpose of God's delays in our life is to show us he saves by grace alone. And this delay proves that God is a God of grace and he helps us to deal with our delays. So delays, beloved, teach us the wisdom of God. They teach us the grace of God. It reminds us that we need the grace of God. Thirdly, it teaches us the faithfulness of God, meaning the trustworthiness of God, meaning that God is absolutely, completely trustworthy. Well, thank God for Jairus that he still had faith in Jesus at this point. You know, his daughter, poor daughter died. You know, he could have responded with resentment, with irritation, vexation, anger, anxiety, you name it, right? He still had faith in Jesus because it tells us that they still all went all the way. Jairus still wanted to go all the way to his home with Jesus, and they did. And when we get there, when Jairus and the disciples get there and the readers, we get there with them, there are people who are doing what? They're weeping and they're wailing. Now, all these people that they're weeping and wailing, and musicians playing music, they were all paid professionals, by the way, beloved. In that culture, when someone dies in the family, it was customary to hire one or two musicians who would play instruments and weep at a funeral service. And if you were wealthy, very wealthy like Jairus, you would have several, even a dozen musicians and these professional people to come and to weep and to play music, to, shed, to set, to set a, a show, to let everyone know in town, to make a point that something tragic has happened. A terrible loss has occurred in your house. It's all a show. But the point is, we have lost, we had, we've had a terrible loss, and everyone knows this in your town. Verse 38 tells us that Jesus enters this home, so many musicians and professionals weeping and wailing to let the whole town, Jesus is late. He didn't make it in time. Why the commotion and the weeping, Jesus says when he walks in there. Why the commotion? Why the weeping? The child has not died, but is asleep. I love that. Jesus has everything under control. He's cool. He's relaxed. He's calm. He's the Lord. He has life and power over death. Because they have seen a dead person before, these people are not. They're not uncertain she's dead. They know she's dead. They know what a dead person looks like. She's been laying there for quite some time. They checked her. They checked her, her vitals maybe, and she's not breathing. Jesus, of course there's a commotion. Well, Mark says when Jesus healed her, it's interesting. When Jesus healed her, he healed her in a particular way. He took her by the hand and he says to her, Talitha kum. He speaks, I believe it's in the Aramaic language. He speaks, he says, it's translated, little girl, I say to you, get up. Unfortunately, this translation cannot completely give us the, the gist of this, uh, this statement. Let me explain. The word Talitha, it literally means, yes, little girl. It's a diminutive. It's a little term, a term of endearment. But in that society, in that culture, a diminutive uh, was used as a pet name. So from culture to culture, uh, pet names are very different. You wouldn't want to call your kids pet names uh, or someone else's kid. But you see, you have to understand that a better translation of this would have been the word honey or sugar or darling. Little darling, get up, he says. Arise from the dead. 
He says, get up. He's actually, I'm sorry, he's not saying arise from the dead. He's just saying a term, sit up, get up, wake up. And what he's doing here is taking her by the hand and he's saying exactly what the father and the mother would have done every morning for you parents when you get up your children. Honey, get up now, time for breakfast. That's what he's doing. He's doing it in a very, in, uh, in a way with such uh, intimacy in terms of endearment. Honey, it's time to get up. Now, what does this teach us? What does this scene here teach us? How does it teach us the faithfulness of God? For one thing, it tells us about the power of God, right? Who wouldn't want to put their faith in that kind of power? Let me give you the principle right away. Faith in Christ is a faith that defies defeat. You see, death is the greatest enemy that we have in this life. Death is the greatest enemy we have. Of course, Satan is ultimately, but death is perhaps one of the greatest enemies we have. It is the most implacable, the most inexorable. It is the greatest enemy to the human race. Death. There are no, incantana uh, no incantations, no hocus pocus, no spells and things that you can say to get rid of death. And when Jesus comes here, right, he comes to this girl. He doesn't do any of that. He doesn't roll up the sleeves, his robe, doesn't tell Peter to get out the, uh, the magic smoke making machine or to do the drum roll. He doesn't do anything like that. Nothing, nothing glamorous. Jesus simply grabs her hand and says, little girl, get up. And the power that he gives there is a power of gentleness. It's almost effortless. He proves the unbelievable. He reaches down into death and sweeps her right out. Upsy-daisy, little girl. There you go. Time to get up. And here's what it means. If you have, Jesus is saying, if you have me in your life, you can laugh at death. You have no fear in death. That's in one of our songs in Christ alone. No fear of death. If you have Jesus in your life, even the greatest enemy, death, you can, you'll have the, the, the sweetest night's sleep. No matter what delay, what trouble you have in your life, you will have a good sleep. This is the power of God with a simple touch demonstrated in Jesus. She was actually dead. Now Luke tells us a story. Luke is a physician, right? Mark wasn't the physician. Luke tells a story. And Luke tells us that she was definitely dead. That's why everyone was so astounded. They were astonished. But Jesus says, not while I'm around. So the first thing is, honey, it's time to get up. Upsy-daisy. That's to prove his awesome power. Faith in Christ will give you victory over death. Beloved, every trial in your life that you have right now, not to diminish them or to mock them, but every trial in your life is small compared to death. You're still alive. Your trial hasn't killed you. You're still here. Everything else in life is trivial. With faith in Christ, you will not be defeated by any trials in life, especially your great enemy, death. You will not be and you cannot be ever defeated by your trials in this life. Jesus told us in John chapter 16 that he has overcome the world, right? Amen. He says this, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In this world, you will have tribulation, trials, delays. Here it is. But take heart. I have overcome the world. Jesus is saying, have faith in me, trust in me, believe in me. You have all the information you, know, you need to know about me. I have a perfect track record. All my promises I keep. I know you, whoever believes in me will not be disappointed. Put your faith in Christ. A faith in Christ is a faith that defies defeat, it defies death. So many songs we have written that have been written about victory in Jesus Christ. So these are the three advanced lessons, at least three that we see in this passage. There could be probably several more if we spend more weeks on in this passage. Delays teach us the wisdom of God. Delays teach us the grace of God. Delays teach us the trustworthiness of God, that he's absolutely, completely trustworthy. 
Beloved, like I said in the beginning, these lessons on faith are known by many Christians, but they are great reminders. And I pray that these truths will have a will stick in our minds as when we ever are walking into a new trial or a delay, or if you're currently in one now, may these truths sink into our hearts and may we be able to apply in our lives and to stop fearing, but keep believing in Jesus, our great God and Savior. Let's go ahead and close in prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you again. Uh, we thank you for these wonderful truths of Scripture about the trials that come in our lives. Uh, Lord, we know, we thank you for your infinite wisdom that you have everything under control and we don't have all the factors. We don't know everything. And we thank you that in your great wisdom, you are still sustaining us, providing for us. Thank you for your grace that has come into our lives that has shown us that we have no self-righteousness. We have no righteousness of our own that can make us right with you. You continually show us that we need your grace. Thank you for your faithfulness that you are completely worthy to be trusted in all things, especially for salvation, Lord. I pray that each person has truly trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation. We pray in his holy name. Amen.